0: This is The Michael Bryan Show. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the show. And today I'm joined with Richard Boyd, who is the co-founder and chairman of Altism, which is a simulation learning company, AI, game technology, you name it. And it basically assists mostly the manufacturing and education industries. So, Richard, thanks so much for joining me today
1: yeah good morning michael great to be here
0: so i was curious about how you got into the ai and technology space you have a, a backstory
1: yeah i'd say instead of me getting into it ai got into me and my team i would say it's been a very organic process i think probably the same for a lot of people in this industry uh i started back before the turn of the century in computer gaming So in the 90s we were building computer game companies Uh, we worked with people like uh well we we created red storm entertainment with author tom clancy created the very first realistic tactical shooter game so you can blame us or thank us for that depending on your perspective Uh, we did game companies with michael crichton with ozzy osborne with science fiction writer douglas adams from over there in the uk michael and you know we were using this medium of real-time 3D gaming and AI was always a part of that you know if you're going to make convincing characters convincing environments for gaming you must have a command of artificial intelligence but I would call that the old AI Um, and then I if you like I can tell you the story about how I got the new religion we're all sort of pondering now around machine learning which happened in 2009.
0: Yeah go for it I'd love to see how that progressed. Right, so
1: so I've been playing with these game technologies all the way through the turn of the century. Then I created a company after that, when we'd sold Red Storm to Ubisoft and uh, got, and we worked in the film industry with people like James Cameron and Brian De Palma and stuff, using this, again, using this real time 3D medium. But after the turn of the century, most of us and me and my team decided to apply it to what we called simulation learning. Our first focus was in K through 12. Uh, but we ended up doing because of what happened on in 2001, uh, we ended up doing a lot of work for the Department of Defense, building simulations that teach soldiers how to set up a, uh, you know, a, a, a radar dish in the desert or operate vehicles or flight simulators or submarines or all sorts of things. And we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about that more in this podcast. So Lockheed Martin, the big aerospace company, bought my company at that time. Uh, in 2007, and I ended up running a group called Virtual World Labs. And that was a innovation cell, sort of like the Skunkworks that Lockheed Martin had. But we were focused on virtual reality, augmented reality, and of course, artificial intelligence. Machine learning hadn't really entered the picture yet, although machine learning existed. Um, but in 2009, I was invited to come to Microsoft Research Labs in San Francisco where there was this guy named Alex Kittman, uh, along with a guy named Jaron Lanier, and I have a picture of me together with them on at the research lab, where they were building this thing called the Microsoft Connect, if you, if you and your listeners remember that. It was a device that connected to the Xbox that could see and hear and where you could use your body in your living room as the, uh, as the interface. Now what was really compelling about that I went there to talk about the sensors and how do we how do we help them from Lockheed Martin's perspective and better sensors for the device but what really intrigued me as I found out is that what Alex was doing was training this system on what a living room was and how to recognize the difference between a plant and a tree or you know a a plant or a table and a chair and a cat and a dog or to recognize each of us when we walk into the room and then use the human body as the controller. And the new thing that they were doing was early machine learning, which was instead of sitting down and programming the rules in, which was what we did with the old AI, uh, instead giving it millions of examples of every living room across the world, difference between Asian living rooms and European living rooms and American living rooms. Uh, And it took over 224,000 hours of CPU time to get this brain kind of trained back then in 2009, we didn't even really have GPUs, uh, to the extent we're using them today. Um, And it ended up being it had to be less than 100 megabytes because the Xboxes had shipped all over the world. And that was the available memory that we had. So It ended up being about 60 megabytes, but it was this device that could understand everything and actually operated pretty well. And that was my first sort of aha moment in machine learning saying, this is brand new, this is the new button on the calculator, the new scientific method, it's gonna change absolutely everything. And that was of course, 14 years ago.
0: What I find fascinating, and this is purely from my own perspective, is how much AI is already a big part of Our lives, and I remember the Xbox Connect, and the idea of realism and being realistic is in part because of AI and the technology and being able to utilize that. Because I imagine it would take somebody a long time to, let's say, draw people, it would take Mm -hmm. ages without giving a computer system examples and different variations and then say look just throw out 400 characters that we need for this game and we'll pick the best ones it seems like it's such a time saver otherwise you would need a very very good digital artist to do it all freehand and when you say that it makes me think well maybe it was never actually created freehand they give it to an AI system that created some of the the images that we see in today's games.
1: Yeah, I think that's always been part of the creative process. A lot of us, you know, 100% of us can consume media pretty easily. Um, about 25 to 30% of us can copy and paste and integrate things together. And that's what, happen, that's what happens with websites. It happens with code all the time, whether or not people admit it. Uh, but only about 1% of us are... Like I use the film example, all of us have cameras, but only 1% of us are the Brian De Palmas and James Camerons, and people that can do something really incredible with that content as standalone human beings. And I'll just draw that line first. Uh, and but this idea of compositing things together is something that's always been part of the creative process that's really powerful. However, when you take now a human and 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 and, uh, give them the companion of an artificial intelligence or machine intelligence that can do that compositing at machine scale and machine speeds, now you have this superhuman ability to be creative. And I wrote an article about that in Design News recently and said this is the superhuman age for creativity.
0: I imagine it actually frees your brain up to then be creative. It's interesting that you bring up using technology and then a lot of the advanced things, the things that would set somebody amazing apart from me, especially in the game space. I have no idea how any of that works. And the idea that there are people out there doing these amazing things, they must have the extra bandwidth to be able to do that, which was then making me think, okay, well, maybe it's allowing more creativity than be otherwise would be if we didn't have the technology.
1: Exactly. I, I I think another big part of creativity while we're talking about it is is iteration, right? The, the ability to do something, step away from it. whether you're writing a book or an article, or you're creating a 2D art or 3D art, like create it, step away from it, come back and look at it again, and then iterate on it. That's how you get really high levels of creativity. You know, there's the old parable of the pottery class, right? And I'll I'll just do this really quickly if your listeners haven't heard of it, but you take, you know, a group, two groups of people, you separate them apart and to one group you say, make the best pot uh, you possibly can, the vase or whatever. And so they're gonna go about the process of how do they make one really amazing pot, having never done pottery before. The other class you take and you say, make as many pots as you can, right? Who produces the higher quality pot in the end? The group that did the iteration because iteration is a really powerful learning capability, but it's also a powerful creative tool. And so now we can do it at machine speeds.
0: That's a really interesting analogy there in that speed can usually correct quality as long as there's an improvement. It's almost like if you can learn from a previous iteration, you'll get better quicker than spending so long thinking about it and so long tweaking it. It's making me think of the difference between procrastinating and perfectionism over just going, going quickly and then improving over time.
1: That's right. And that's why even in software today, we talk about get that minimally viable product done as quickly as possible, get it to the user base, have them use it, get into that feedback loop of improvement. And that's how you end up with a high quality thing Um, you know I my, my kids can see this across my property here I have a little plot of land here in North Carolina and I I've built three uh tree houses so far for I say for my kids but we end up spending a lot of time adult time in these things now but you can look at the three that I've built you can see the last one is a dramatically better quality than the first one that I built when I didn't have any idea what I was doing right so that's yeah. that's just one of the examples I can look out the door and see from where I am.
0: So how did you settle on education and manufacturing then? It sounds like you've got a broad level of knowledge and obviously you go deeper in some areas as well, no doubt. But how did you settle on those two things? What was the the spark that ignited that?
1: Well, there the, the are actually two different answers to those questions. Um, but the with regard to education, even at Lockheed, you know, this big 100 year old aerospace company that makes fighter, you know, fighter jets and spaceships. Uh, I dragged them into education and healthcare be- because with my team, I think we'd re- sort of reached that point in Maslow's hierarchy of needs where we'd done a lot of amazing things in entertainment in the 90s. And we we're like, okay, how do we do something more that contributes more and is more meaningful? Uh, because, you know, when you're, when you're in your 20s and 30s, early 30s, and you go to a cocktail party, it's really cool to say, hey, I worked on The Abyss with James Cameron, or I worked on Mission Impossible, which I did, right? And that's really cool. But as you get a little bit older, you're like, <clears throat> no, the work I do now is very meaningful, and I'm actually making an impact on my community and society. So one of my investors back at the beginning of the, you know, back in 2003 was Reed Hoffman. So Reed is the guy who was with PayPal, with Elon Musk and and Peter Thiel, right? And he was worth about $30 million back then, but he had just started this thing called LinkedIn when he invested in my company, 3D Solve, which was focused on education. But he said the reason what he liked about what we were doing was he said, look, you want to figure out something you can do with technology that has a positive impact on a billion people so that that sort of exponential curve thing that that we all talk about and so that's that's really what motivates a lot of us anytime it's possible and you can make money at it it's really more fulfilling to work in things like education and healthcare with these technologies than just entertaining people or just like we did we from my perspective I think we took a whole decade and took all this great technology and applied it to social media which is just eyeballs and ears, uh, and trying to monetize that and turn that into money, which is, I think, not the highest moral purpose of all this stuff that we're playing with. So that's why the education bit. And I believe, and we've proven we can really move the needle with it. As far as manufacturing, the other thing that's always interesting to me is to see these advancing technologies that we're, again, applying at Lockheed in the F-35 program, the space program, and then walk outside and look at other industries and say, wow, this capability is here. These folks don't even know that it's available. Uh, like William Gibson says, the future's already here. It's just unevenly distributed. So like, like, let's distribute it to these other places that can really benefit. So in manufacturing, I saw that they were still doing things about you know, 15 years in the past, the way they were applying technology. So I look at that and say, well, I can really help them. So I started as an advisor to a company out in California. And then we've expanded that to to show, like, you really can have a 10X, 100X impact by applying things like simulation and artificial intelligence and machine learning. And I'll pause there because, but but that's my quick answer to your two
0: questions. (laughs) It sounds like you've got quite, a lot of knowledge on people as well. The fact that you are able to take AI, AI and put it into something like education, you need to know how people learn, how do individuals learn, how best to communicate that or show that or simulate certain things that will lead to better outcomes. What have you learned about education, the education system, what's working, what's not, and maybe some insights on how people learn from your experience using AI?
1: Yeah, so that that's what was interesting. Again, in the 90s, it was all about entertainment for us. We had knew nothing about I knew nothing about education in 2001. We had this strong feeling from our experience of working on the Douglas uh, Adams game and and on the game with Michael Crichton that even, you know, we could do a lot of entertainment with our medium, but also people were learning about 14th century France in our timeline game, for example. Right. So so that was great. And, uh, but then we started actually applying it to like, let's build a, a, a digitized tactical operations center for the army uh, and let them actually practice and train in this simulated world, which wasn't a game engine and it was multiplayer. And it was a really new idea for the Department of Defense. They didn't even know how to, how to, how to procure it or how to measure it at the end. Um, but we, we showed very quickly that you get a shorter path to mastery every time. But the big sort of project I worked on at Lockheed that I always talk about, and I think Tom Van Der Ark, who was the head of the Gates Foundation at one point, um, wrote his book, Getting Smart. And in there, he talks about this program that I worked on called the uh, uh, Military Flying Training System. This is for the UK Ministry of Defense we were given the entire contract for how do you produce all of the aircraft crew members. So whether it's a fighter pilot, a a pilot on a C-130, a helicopter pilot, or someone who operates either weapons or communication systems or radars on these aircraft, we get the raw recruits in the beginning, and we don't get paid until we produce that qualified person at the end. So the incentive alignment was just beautiful, right? I wish we could do everything that way. So we... Had to figure out how much time should be spent in a classroom, how much time with an instructor, how much time with multimedia instruction, how much time in a simulator, how much time in a real aircraft yields that shorter path to mastery because that's how that's the only time we get paid. And it was amazing. We ended up getting lucky, got a queen, uh, a medal from the Queen of England because we had compressed that time by sometimes a third or sometimes more. Uh, because of, you know, we weren't just selling a solution. We weren't saying, well, how many of my fine Lockheed Martin simulators can I sell the the UK? It was who has the best simulator for that? If it's Boeing, then let's go buy Boeing simulators or "Who, who are the best instructors? We didn't care what it was. We were just trying to solve for produce that qualified person. And imagine what we could do if we did that in education in the process of teaching algebra or just high school. Right. What if we, what if you could go all the way through high school in two thirds of the time? What do you do with that extra time? You either learn more or do something else with it. So anyway, we we've proven that. So now I'm really interested in, like, how do we apply it now? And that's just the simulation part and this sort of mix, because it's not just one thing. It's that mix of all those learning modalities that I just described produces that effect. Uh, so when you add AI to it, it has this compounding factor, and we can talk
0: about that. That's something I was actually quite curious about, because I was processing it just while you were explaining it. And it making, it's making me wonder, at what point do you think we will eventually think we need some robots to enact all this learning out, because humans are simply no longer equipped to deal with the information that... AI is able to deliver. Almost like the only thing that's going to break the system is us as humans. Eventually, we're going to need robots to learn it as quick as the AI can produce it because we simply have have no hope of being able to keep up.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's that is very true. And I've had this thesis for a long time that pretty soon in the 21st century, being a standalone human being will be insufficient, right? Like you'll be considered handicapped if you're not augmented by the these sort of other superhuman tools like like artificial intelligence and simulation so by the way that's the point people often ask like why did you uh go because i did have a machine learning company from 2014 until recently called tanjo where i was really doing the early work uh trying to pioneer and and do early work in how do you apply machine learning Uh, And we can talk about that in a minute. But what I've done now is I've merged all of that together into this simulation company, Ultasim. And people say, well, why did you do that? Why aren't you just a pure AI company? That's where all the money is right now. And I'm like, no, I think the next wave is uh, things like knowledge graphs and large language models paired with simulated worlds that can be modeled by the AI that help us design our better future, right? So that's that's why I'm sort of putting my arm again around all of these capabilities saying, finally we're here and we can achieve the vision of things like, you know, Neil Stevenson's Diamond Age, where he talked about the Young Ladies Illustrated Primer, which is a, a device and an AI and a simulator together that really advances any kind of understanding or learning. And I'll, I'll pause there.
0: I wonder if it's the age old saying, that we know knowledge isn't necessarily power it's the application of that knowledge it's it's almost like you can read as many books as you like but until you take any steps towards something that's when you then start to learn and start to realize what's practical what's not the lessons learned that sort of thing it's making me think that a combination of ai and robots is the way that we can actually apply the knowledge it's almost like ai is just not going to be enough because what's the point of having all that knowledge and being able to speed up so much if there's nothing available that can actually apply the knowledge that we're generating
1: yeah the way the way we think of it in my teams of people in my uh, circles is the most powerful force in the universe is intelligence right so how do you get to intelligence so everybody talks about data today and data is the new oil but there's a big leap I always tell folks whether it's manufacturing or whatever industry I'm talking to is that you know it's a big leap from data to information and that's this digital transformation that needs to happen and I can talk about projects I've worked on there where you know we did this for the Depar- department of education was one of the first projects I ever worked on back in 2010 when I was still at Lockheed so Arnie Duncan comes to who's the Secretary of Education at the time, walks over to Lockheed and says, we want to do digital transformation. We're like, "Okay, what does that mean to you? They said, well, we have all this stuff in the Library of Congress. We have all this stuff in the Smithsonian. We're busy scanning it all, whether it's, you know, 3D uh, artifacts, uh, um, you know, statues and, and things, as well as scanning all the books that are in and digitizing them that are in the Library of Congress. And we wanna make it transparent to inquiry and available to all the teachers in the country and eventually maybe all the world. And that was called the learning registry. So that was the first real big project where I used my machine learning skills. I just learned from Microsoft um, uh, too. And that was uh, looking at everything that they'd scanned And then we had it, we built a little machine learning system that could say, all right, how many of these things, similar things, have been tagged before by experts where they've hashtagged it and said, this is a Grecian urn or whatever it is. Uh, And it learned from all those previous tags and could auto tag it. But it would auto tag things with not just like five or six or seven um, sort of hashtags, but with up to 4,000 weighted conceptual vector, you know, topic nodes, we would say. So if it would read uh, "War and Peace" by Tolstoy, like a human might tag that and say that this is a Russian novel about war and it's about love and it's by this guy named Tolstoy, and they'd probably stop. Our system would tag it to with up to four thousand weighted things, and that just made it easier for people to to access it. Um, but then you know once you get there, now you're at information, which is informa- which is data that's been organized and is made transparent to inquiry. But that last step is the biggest leap and that's where either human or machine uh, uh, can act upon it because some kind of compute has happened to that information some kind of transform some kind of algorithm or function has been applied so now you can act on it and that's where humans really need a lot of help because we're awash in data there's all kinds of stuff out there but how do you know what to pay attention to and Uh, this is where we are. We're at this point where we can help people go from data to information to intelligence.
0: Are you a positive person when it comes to the future of this? It sounds like you've been at the forefront of it for quite a while. I imagine you've got an interesting take on where you think the future is going. I mean, do you picture a Transformers thing where we're just overcome by robots all the time or are they going to be helpful like them or are we talking terminator where they turn on us and and that's it what side of the spectrum do you sit on
1: well i you know it it's it's been a little bit shocking i think even those of us who have been in this industry for a while were taken a little bit by surprise on november 30th 2022 i call that the bump in the night that's when uh, chat gpt was released by OpenAI because before that we had been playing with GPT-2 and and BERT and all of the transformer systems before that and I was deploying this inside of banks and to all 58 community colleges in North Carolina and to research institutions and and they were going like you know this is pretty good and we we have these chatbots that can help us it's pretty darn good but it's it was nowhere near what happened when we went to ChatGPT so we were taken a little bit by surprise But yes, I've been going to the singularity conferences. I think I was just posting on some of my tweets from 2009 where I'm sitting there with Ray Kurzweil and and, uh, uh, Ben Goertzel and people like that uh, talking about the future of AI and when is this singularity point going to happen. And the singularity is neither good nor bad. It's just this point at which beyond it's like the black hole singularity, but this is a technological one. And it's this idea that once we create an AI that can improve itself, beyond this point, it's beyond. It's impossible to make predictions or plans because we can't understand what the world's going to look like after that thing, after that event happens. Now, I'm not saying November 30th, 2022, was the singularity, but it was a singularity. It was a moment when everything changed, and everyone's still trying to adjust to it. I mean, I'll be. I'm. I'm speaking in Las Vegas and San Francisco next week about this subject still trying to help people get to grips with it and figure out how to apply it now like most technologies it's very promethean right and that it's it's it it can be either good or bad it just depends on how it's applied so we worry about bad applications of it but i think there's a greater opportunity to be what uh what hans moravec calls ourselves in more potent form. Or what I say, you know, when I write articles about superhuman education and superhuman healthcare, it's about, again, that idea that it's not enough to be a standalone human being. You need these capabilities, especially if you're in life or death, a really critical areas of endeavor, like education and healthcare, I believe are, or even pilots of an aircraft or going to space. You want to have some kind of help right, from the machines yeah. to perform better.
0: Yeah, so right, I think that's the more crazy. likely outcome. Yeah, it's so it's, it's almost a... It's awaking a thought in my head of it would be great if we didn't have to work hard all the time just to get by. It would be mm. nice if some of that was taken care of by robots. Now, I'm not saying they may develop feelings. I'm not saying we may have to sort, you know, rant about robots' rights or whatever it is eventually. But I I think being able to take some of the burden of survival, of generating resources, of getting by day-to-day towards robots and away from people i think that would probably be the better way to go They'd be stronger than we are faster than we are smarter than we are but if we can influence them give them certain parameters to stick to it can be the key to unlocking a lot of freedom for for us humans and the need to not have to stress out and work so hard and constantly there'll be some people that still do don't get me wrong there will be people that will still do that but the people with you know the the jobs that will be quite easily replaceable. I think we don't all have to work so hard all of the time. There are people that will, but the people that don't have to, they would benefit greatly in a way from having technology take over.
1: Yeah, it's this is what you're describing is absolutely happening, and you could even say that it's been happening for a couple of centuries. So during the Industrial Revolution 300 years ago, whatever, let's say in 1800, 91% of everybody in the United States was involved in agriculture, right? And it was very heavy, very difficult work, you know, getting, you know, growing crops on your land. Then in 1900, it was 40%, 41% maybe. Today it's 2%. So we have this 200 years to adapt to more automation around us to make our lives easier. And yet we still complain all the time. Right. But our standard of living is very, (laughs) very much higher. We have we have a lot more choices and freedoms than we had 200 years ago. But now what's happening is it is going to happen very fast and we're going to have to adapt very quickly. And and governments and policies and social structures are just not set up for adapting to, at the speed of Moore's law and Metcalf's law, which is there's a change happening every eighteen months or every year, uh, and you need to adapt to that change. And we even say in my company, there's no point in having a five-year plan. We have a we have a one and a half to two-year plan, and then we call it even. It's not a you know, it's not a map. It's a compass point <laughs> that we're heading towards. So we got to be ready to change because that things are changing right under our feet all the time. So that's the new reality that's difficult for embedded larger companies uh, or social structures or, or governments is, you know, policy is gonna be trailing by 10 years. So how do we catch up and make sure that we can adapt to it?
0: That's an interesting point when you brought up agriculture because to people back then, I would imagine something as simple as a combine harvester would be crazy. The amount of jobs that that would remove, essentially having one person driving off a hundred people and doing it three times or five times as fast as what a person would, and that mm-hmm. that must have been alien to those people as well
1: back then. No, no doubt, and that's it was the same sort of social upheaval. The Luddites were were objecting to the steam engine initially, right? The steam engine was the big that was the beginning of the industrial revolution and it it upset a lot of people that human work so it's the age in in the end it's this age-old battle between uh capital and labor right and what's going to happen this is inevitable is ai is tipping the hand even more in favor of capital so we've got so a lot of these other structures we have like just regular capitalism i think has to be adjusted for that fact or we're going to have some social issues so that's we talk about that all the time, but how do we enable and empower individuals? And that's what's cool about efforts like OpenAI and others, where you know we're democratizing and pushing this out. Like my my 11 year old kid uses GBT, right? And so everyone can expand their capacity by by using these tools if they have. But but the real key is they've got to have access to a compute device and the network. And if you don't, that is the new sort of social issue, uh, human rights issue, I think, of the 21st century is if you don't have that access, you cannot be competitive in the new market.
0: I wonder what you think will happen. Do you think humans will break first, or do you think it's going to be a government issue? Do you think people just boycott the whole thing and not use it in an attempt to make themselves feel better in a lot of ways, make themselves feel valuable or feel human in some ways. What do you think will happen?
1: Well, these are weighty. uh, This is a weighty discussion to have in the morning without a glass of scotch in front of us. That's what we should be doing right now. (laughs) But what I do is when I want to talk about these sorts of things, I gather my, I have this smart group of people that I pull together, guys like David Brin, the science fiction writer who wrote The Postman, and I don't know if you guys know him, uh, or David Bray. uh, I call him the Davids. I've got David Smith, David Bray, and and, uh, David Brin. Uh, I pull them together and we talk along with people like Reed Hoffman, Joey Chito, Alan Kay, or even James Cameron, right? Uh, I was on the board of his school out in California for four years when we were trying to think like, how do we make 21st century humans? But, but yeah, this this these issues are are uh, gonna be really weighty, but we talk about things like, you know,, A- why don't we turn government over to AI? right cuz why don't we first of all we should be turning car driving over to ai it's much safer you know right now in the us we kill 40,000 people a year unnecessarily there's over a million people who get injured every year the insurance costs are high and we already have a technological solution to that problem it's just autonomous vehicles and let's invest in a little bit of infrastructure not just charging stations but but uh you know elements built into the road that help aid these things to, to move better. You wouldn't have traffic jams anymore, all kinds of things. But we're not, like I said, the technology here. We're not applying it yet. Uh, but what if we did turn this over to turn governance over to AI, but also uh, each one of us individually? And I tell this when I talk to my audiences, I say you know, if there's a thousand people in this audience, pretty soon there will be 2,000 entities at least in the audience, meaning that each one of the people in there, as I mentioned, Alan Kay or David Brin or someone, their augmented reality or their AI and AR systems would be giving them information to augment the conversation while it's happening. And so they're vastly more informed and intelligent. Um, and and. You know, then the last thing with the triumvirate of David's and other people that I gather is should, as you pointed out, should those AIs actually have rights and are they conscious? You know, so we talk about that stuff as well.
0: <laughs> usually gonna over Scott. That's going to be weird. Oh, definitely. Yeah. To <laughs> the, the, the think that we'd be sober going down that rabbit hole is uh, unlikely. Yeah. But it, it does bring up an interesting. I guess thought experiment really in that if we wiped the slate clean so ie all of past technologies disappeared and we were only using recent technology because let's face it most of it is just because we're holding on to the past we don't want Mm. to knock all the old buildings down to put the new ones back up again even though the materials would be stronger much more resilient Mm. everything would be enhanced by using today's technology but We still use brick we still use we still got all of the old buildings still up there people live in those homes we're going to knock them all down make everyone homeless and 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 then eventually be able to house them again if we did that let's say hypothetically speaking i'm not suggesting people do that i'm not suggesting you kick people out of their homes and build modern homes for them but if we were to start again with the technology that we had how much of a difference would we experience you mentioned no traffic jams which would make me think oh okay well maybe everything would be better there'd be less it's almost like with the autonomous vehicle thing the person that's going to be at risk will be the manual driver because it's going to be the minority on the road at some point yeah
1: they would be the big liability right so definitely
0: yeah i think there's
1: that's one of the things, one of the skills that's really important. Um, and I've written about this in some of my superhuman articles uh, that, you know, this, this idea of going back to first principles and not just iterating on top of things to, to because you've already invested in previous infrastructure, but say, look, if you did have a clean sheet of paper, and that, that's why I joined the board of the Muse School that James Cameron and his wife Susie created in Calabasas, California, because that's what he did. He brought in Sir Ken Robinson and me and Mark Prensky and people like that, and said, hey, how how do we make 21st century humans who are going to be the architects of the future who think like musicians and poets and scientists and mathematicians at the same time? We're like, really interesting problem. Yeah. How would you do that? Would you do it the way we do it in K through 12 public education here? Or the, would you use the Montessori method or would you use the Reggio Emilio method? Or it turns out, you know, it's a whole new thing, like I'm talking about with simulation and um, project-based learning and, and really driving, you know, having integrated things where these aren't all separate subjects, but it's all integrated together. Take all the stuff I learned working on the UK Ministry of Defense project and say, like, look, what is that combination of things that yields a shorter path to mastery? And then once that human has reached that level of mastery, how do you then augment them with the right AI to go out and perform whatever task you're asking them to do? I mean, those are the really sort of very interesting problems. Um, but you know, the other big thesis that I have, and I, I wanna get this across, it's in my soundbite list here, is I have this thesis I call, this is the simulation century. So all, there's a lot of talk about AI and machine learning, but for me, it's really about simulation, right? So the last century was about the moving image. It was the first time in human history when we could review recent events, current events, by looking at video footage and talking about, you know, the Vietnam War or Tiananmen Square, whatever. And I, I say this century is about the ability to model and simulate and predict, you know, what's going to happen. But it's not just about prediction, it's also about modeling like, what do you want the UK to be? What is life after Brexit going to be? Or what is what is this community going to be in, in the United States after the latest Build Back Better program is implemented? You can actually see that and build towards it and have the AI help you with that. So that's what I say. Like machine learning and AI, um, and I always talk about them as separate things, um, actually help us simulate a model and build towards and design towards a better future.
0: Who do you think is going to decide what that better future is? Who decides that? Who makes the decision?
1: Yeah. And that's the the, next week I'm at San Francisco at the Fairmont. Uh, I believe Sam Altman will be there with me on stage. We're going to be talking about the alignment problem because the main question of that i get all the time is can we design reliably can we reliably design utility functions or goals into these machine learning systems that are aligned with human values and the answer is yes it's an emphatic yes the question then becomes whose values <laughs> right right yes, and that yes. that's the that's the big issue right is is who's designing these things and who are they carefully thinking about the utility functions they're giving it because that's how these systems work now, can they break free of their utility function and do things outside? That's another thing to be both concerned about and also excited about, um, because we have seen that. Uh, I'll tell you one quick story at Lockheed Martin, which is we don't get to see anymore. it was It was sort of in the news internally, and then we it was out for a bit, and then all of a sudden, I can't find anything about it. But we had this experiment where we had this big, imagine a big warehouse space. A whole bunch of little robots that were designed to mesh network together now this was to design and this is now unclassified so i can talk about it I, I hope but but that you know these satellites that we put up there in space if space junk comes by and hits it or the chinese target it and try to blow it up it can actually take itself apart into 14 pieces and then if part of it gets damaged it goes back together and each one of the individual functions can actually be either thrust or communications, or you know, they all, they all have the same redundant capacity so they can change their, uh, hopefully I'm not drawing this out too long, but we were playing with it in this big warehouse and given it the ability to understand and sense for itself that, oh, there's an object coming. It doesn't need a human to push a button. It can make its own decision to go apart. You mentioned transformers, right? And then come back together. Uh, but what it was able to do in that warehouse is it actually um, parts of that system escaped the warehouse, meaning that it had to learn how to open a door and get out. Now, we all thought it was probably a prank that some engineer internally at Lockheed did it as a prank, <laughs> but we never could find any evidence of that. And then it all got kind of got quiet afterwards. We're Like, hey, when I was talking to some of my colleagues recently, I'm like, whatever happened with that? Because I want to tell that story, but I can't find any more information about it. They're like, oh, no, nobody <laughs> talks about that thing. So that if that doesn't put the hair up on the back of your neck, maybe it should. Um, but th- there's other examples like of a, a this this uh, researcher was building a machine learning system, teaching it to play the game Othello. But the experiment was just give it text description of the rules, and that's it. After that, it's got to adapt and infer and learn on its own. So initially, it was really poor at it, and then all of a sudden, very quickly, like all these systems, like AlphaGo and Deep Blue and all these systems that play games, it learned really, really quickly and and became better at humans at at winning at Othello. And when they looked under the hood, they found that it had made a simulated 3D model of the Othello board on its own, right? That, again, hair up on the back of the neck. It's like that was not programmed. It was not put in there. And it decided to do that on its own to help it visualize what it was doing. So this goes back to my Microsoft Connect story where I was sitting there in my living room after having, you know, seen how that thing was built and it's in my my kids are playing with it, I'm looking at it and I go to bed and all of a not my eyes open in bed and I walk back in there and I unplug it. <laughs> Cuz I'm like I know what it's doing, right? It's got <laughs> eyes and ears and it's got computation that's going back to some mothership. It's connected to the net and it's like what what could it be doing and it felt so invasive and so like and, and we're just talking about that now we're talking about large language models being this separate thing and now you know things like dolly and visual sorts of machine learning systems are getting better and better but again when you have a composite system that can see and it can sense the outside the the physical world interact with that physical world and learn from it it's only a matter of time before it breaks free
0: yeah is is simulation then the best way of iterating and learning and improving and exploring a system like you mentioned that these these systems are able to build models and simulations of the game like go and like the the other game that you mentioned as well you mentioned that it's able to create simulations an actual model of the problem that it's trying to solve and then come up with new and unique and creative ways of solving that is that the best way to do it to Uh, simulate
1: yeah that is the superpower and and also we believe that's that's what we do too like the good like gary casper album when he was playing chess he's trying to he's trying to move ahead like 10 or 12 moves in the on the chessboard and think through all those implications of course humans are are, I, i always joke that humans haven't had an upgrade since the pleistocene so so you know we're we're, that's why there's no hope of us being able to compete with these machine progeny that we're uh that we're building but yeah the ability to model and simulate and look into the future is really compelling and 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 it does give and because they can go to more layers uh further out than we human our human brains can do they're going to outperform us Um, but that is a that's certainly a critical skill and i'll just this reminds me of something that when I was at Lockheed Martin still in 2011, we found, or uh, we caught the uh, high frequency trading systems out there trading with each other in the future. And this has been, you know, we're talking about nanoseconds in the future, but still I fired my financial planner like the next day when I thought about it, I'm like, you can't help me anymore, dude. Like these things are going into the future, <laughs> trading with each other because they're they're not bound by the same dimensional, constraints that we humans have. In fact, I've talked to people about that and they're like, well, you know, I'm going to build my own AI and I'm going to use it as a trading system. And I'm like, well, you better, it's not enough to have a really, really good AI that's doing your trading that can trade in microseconds. You also need to be down on Wall Street with your machine connected as close as possible to the trading machines physically, because the speed of light all of a sudden matters, right? Like that's the new world that we're in. It's an uneven playing field for us poor, dumb humans.
0: So what are we doing to actually survive this? Because it could be a positive future, it could also be a negative future. So what can we do to actually help the humans in all of this? It seems very, very tilted in the favor of the technology. So can we program the AI? Can we add some rules, some principles to stick to? What can we actually do about this?
1: Yeah, I think that responsible, and I think OpenAI, for example, has been, has had responsibility, social responsibility at its core from the beginning. In fact, initially it was a nonprofit. Now, of course, they have their for-profit arm and that changes everything. But, that, but at least Sam has said that he's like, he's like we're never going to go public because there's no way, it doesn't make any sense to have you know, quarterly results tied to something as critical as this technology. And yes, I do believe government should be involved in it and hopefully a benevolent you know, government guiding it and and uh, helping to regulate it because it is it is critical. But I like I said, the reason I'm making the move that I've made right now where I've I've had my my company that was just doing simulation stuff, 3D game based type front-end simulation with AI in it, I'm, I'm having that that company acquire my machine learning company and pull that in because I think that's the future. It's, that, it's knowledge graphs, which not enough people talk about, but that's a component of AI, is that organization of information around a contextual subject like healthcare or the law or motorcycle maintenance or whatever. So knowledge graphs that are really deeply embedded that are correct and don't hallucinate Married with a large language model system like Llama or ChatGPT or whatever it happens to be, and then paired with simulation, the ability to model and simulate futures, those three, that triumvirate of technologies together is the next wave, in my opinion. And if you're interested in knowing the next wave after that, I can give you the wave after that.
0: Let's. Play the game, Richard. Let's go for the next <laughs> wave. Let's let's push things further. Go on. I dare you. All
1: right. Well, so the next bit, and I we're not there yet, but uh again, with all the people that I sit around and talk about futures with, we've, you know, when I was at uh, one of the things also that happened during my six-year tenure at Lockheed running virtual world labs, um, is that we bought the very first quantum computer from a company called D-Wave. And it was in this strip mall in Los Angeles, not far from USC. It was next to a Mexican restaurant. I remember it's just so bizarre that you walk in there and you're looking at the future. Um, and this is probably 2010 or 11 also. I think it was 11. And I'm looking at this machine and just going, "What is? what am I looking at? It's not like put some lights on it and make it blink or go ding or whir or something because it's just a silent black block. And we're talking to the engineers in their lab coats standing around. And my colleague David Smith was was with me and we we're like, you know how do, you know what kind of algorithms or programming language do you use to talk to this? And I'm like, oh, it doesn't use algorithms. We're like, what? Oh no, it, it uses probability envelopes and we have to learn to get into like how to design the parameters of an experiment and then feed it to the system. And I had to literally just sit down for a second and just ponder what he just told me. But again, when we're trying to think about how do you make, Uh, a system that can actually think on its own and reason on its own. If you take the things that I just described, this ability to model and simulate the world, sense the world, and then knowledge graph, large language model that can process the information and and the language around that and describe what it's seeing and hearing and feeling and thinking, then you put that in a quantum computer, uh, boom, there it is. There's your singularity or Skynet or whatever it ends up being on the other side.
0: So what can we do? Can we engineer that? Can we program that? Can we give it parameters that it can't break free from? Or is there always a risk of the AI, the machine learning, the new life form, I guess you could call it? Are they always going to find a way of breaking out because that's what they want to do? Well,
1: again, uh, if anything becomes super intelligent, that's why we always say that anytime, as soon as we make AI plus, which is a super intelligent, self-improving system that has access to enough, whatever energy it needs and whatever information it needs, that's the last inventions humans need ever make. So all the other things you were talking about, about building your house and all that, like I believe that, or we believe, my team of crazy people think that at that point, nanotechnology kicks in and now you're building things at the molecular level. So now everything becomes a software problem. So I'm just saying, hey, I'd like a summer house over here. I want it made out of these materials and I'm going to be back in you know six days and the system will have taken whatever raw materials are available to it. And I have my house or my jet engine or my car or my whatever it is so it's just about the only currency then becomes like i said intelligence and energy and software <laughs> that's that's what everything is about at that point now how do we build social structures around that how do we how do we ensure that those systems do what we would like them to do and don't start having their own goals and and hopefully like cameron has talked about or presented in his movies right the idea that it says humans are a nuisance and We don't need them anymore and why keep them around especially if there are some humans who are deciding that they don't like what we're doing and they're trying to turn us off well now they're an existential threat so therefore right so you just go through all these iterations of the logic and you go yeah there's so many outcomes and this is why people like really smart people like bill gates and stephen hawking and even elon musk and folks are saying like no we we ought to be really concerned. but i think we can design good utility functions for these systems but what you know that there's no guarantee that everybody that's working with it is going to be doing the same is does china have the same rules like we know right now in the us and the department of defense i can have an autonomous system i saw one at area 51 at palmdale at the skunk works whatever you want to call it years and years ago with my security clearance and it's now it's now no longer classified there's a scramjet drone that can be anywhere in the world within four hours and when it was when it arrives on station can make its own firing decisions without humans but we don't allow it we program it in there's like no you must get a human in the loop go before you do anything does china have that rule no does russia have that rule no do they, are they building in these areas? Absolutely, China is investing, it's their big national priority, but they don't have the same rules that we do. So it's noteworthy just for your audience, you may have seen that early on OpenAI was publishing all their papers and we, my team was just devouring everything that came out about like, what's the next level of neural net uh, uh, technology uh, experimentation and, and knowledge. But now they've gone quiet. So not you can't get those papers anymore. It's still coming out of different places, but you don't you're not seeing anything out of the you know $12 billion that's gone into open AI recently. And probably that's good.
0: Well, Richard, I really do hope that it's a positive outcome. Some people may think you painted in quite a bleak picture, but I hope that we as humans can take this amazing tool and help it as you say engineer better futures so for those that are curious for those that want to learn more about you how can people do that so if you've got a website are you on social media how can people connect with you
1: sure well on LinkedIn I'm because again Reed Hoffman was an investor I'm one of the first you know, several hundred users of LinkedIn so you can find me there Richard Boyd uh, I've uh, on Twitter, if that were X or whatever it's called now, I'm metaversial. I've always been metaversial. I've been trying to build the metaverse for a long time. So it's M-E-T-A-V-E-R-S-I-A-L. And the website's ultasim.com, U-L-T-I-S-I-M.
0: Thanks so much for being a guest on the show. Those that are listening, feel free to subscribe, share the show, tell others, and also leave a review wherever you are listening into to your podcasts. Richard, thanks for joining me. It's been great. And I look forward to keeping in touch. Thank you.